Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to LSE, to our public lecture for this evening. My name is Paul Kelly, and I'm a pro-director of the school and a professor of political science. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you here for um, Philip Coggins' uh, lecture on his new book, The Last Vote, Threats to Western Democracy. Philip was a Financial Times journalist for over 20 years and is now the Buttonwood columnist for The Economist. In 2009, he was named Senior Financial Journalist in the Harold Wincott Awards and was voted Best Communicator at the Business Journalist of the Year Awards. He's the author of um, The Money Machine and Paper Promises and winner of the Spears Business Book of the Year Award, long-listed for the Financial Times Goldman Sachs Business Book of the Year Award. Philip has spoken here before on one of his previous books, so he's um, familiar with uh, the public lecture system at the uh, LSE. He'll talk for between 30 and 40 minutes, and there'll be plenty of opportunity for question and answer on what I expect will be a very um, interesting, thought-provoking, and potentially controversial talk. So without going on for too long, let me say um, welcome to Philip and hand over to Philip for his talk this evening. Thank you very much, Paul, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming out on a wet uh, Monday night when schools have already gone back. I'm glad at least we didn't clash with the England game tomorrow. Um, so the, the title of the book and the talk is about the threats to Western democracy, and you might reasonably ask, given that yesterday we saw, or, oh, sorry, over the weekend we saw that power passed peacefully from one party to another to, in Australia, and we're uh, expecting a nice, um, kind... Um, peaceful election in Germany in a week or two, that what are these threats? Um, and I really have wrote the book because I fear that we have a tendency to complacency about democracy, that we have this view of the conveyor belt of history in which we are always moving forward in a positive direction in which um, more and more countries became democratic over the 20th century. Uh, democracy is the final... Um, destination of societies, um, as was argued um, 20 years ago about the, in the end of history in The Last Man, uh, and that therefore we can never reverse itself. But I think you need to think about the way that democracy has developed in history and um, the long periods in which democracy hasn't existed at all. So full adult democracy in the sense of men and women having the chance to vote has only been around for a century. And even within that period, it's faced several, several wobbly periods. So many of us here perhaps will remember the 1970s when there was talk that Britain had become ungovernable. Uh, and when European economies struggled in the 1930s, we saw them turn to authoritar authoritarianism of the right and the left. And in the 1970s, we saw Latin American countries in the face of economic difficulties um, turn to military hunters. And we saw Greece, of course, fall victim to that between 1967 and 1974. So it has not been, even in the brief period in which democracy has um, been triumphing, it has not been a period of smooth progress. So what are the threats I'm worried about? Well, I think we face both bottom-up and top-down threats. So the bottom-up threat comes from the fact that voters have an increasingly contemptuous attitude towards their politicians. We vote less than we used to. The turnout 
in elections has been falling for 30 or 40 years. We, in opinion polls in the US, for example, congressmen were voted lower than cockroaches and traffic jams as objects of popularity. If you look at the way that the media treat politicians, politicians, John, in John Humphrey's uh, memorable phrase, the relationship between a journalist and a politician should be that between a dog and a lamppost. Um, that compares with 50, 60 years ago when uh, it, political interviews were along the lines of, have you any words, Prime Minister, for a grateful nation? Well, I'm glad we moved on from that period, but if we have a continual uh, treatment of our leaders as corrupt, incompetent fools, then we, will, we risk undermining the very real benefits that those of us who live in democracies enjoy. And we risk losing that huge advance which the majority of people throughout history have not enjoyed at our peril. Um, what's happened in the last few years has only added to the cynicism of voters. So if you look at Europe... By and large, and with the exception of Angela Merkel, the, the parties in office at the start of the financial crisis have been voted out of office and the official oppositions have come into office. And what voters have then experienced is very little change in actual economic policy at all. We are still getting the same diet of austerity and um, public reform. And so that leads to the view that um, all politicians are the same and you haven't really got a real choice in those circumstances. So the temptation, therefore, is to turn to the extremes. And if you look at Greece, where you had a 25% vote for a Trotskyite um, party, and in opinion polls, a 10 to 12% vote for an openly neo-Nazi party, um, you can see that there is a uh, large potential vote in some countries which could go to those extremes. And if voters don't turn to those extremes, there's another potential danger, which is that they turn to the charismatic outsider, the strong man who will um, deliver economic security um, and also political security against terrorism, whatever, uh, and never mind the democratic niceties. So obvious examples, Vladimir Putin in Russia or uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. And once those outsiders... Um, get into office, it's very difficult to shift them. Uh, Berlusconi, for all he seems a fairly ridiculous figure to those of us in Britain, has been the dominant figure in Italian politics for the last 20 years. Why? Because Berlusconi has enormous financial power and enormous power over the media. And, of course, this is a self-reinforcing process. If you're in office and you can have, uh, offer a measure of control over the courts and over the media, you can perpetuate your office. You don't actually fix the elections, but if all the propaganda is in your, uh, on your behalf, on television, on radio, then you're more likely to win a subsequent election. So that's another uh, potential threat. And we've seen, we see all over the world that votes can be rigged. We've just seen it probably in, in the Moscow mayoral election. Um, and people can protest about it, but often the next day they don't have the energy or don't have the courage to keep protesting about it, and those people who have got into office um, via those means continue on. So with those bottom-up threats that voters are disillusioned and disgusted, we have a, another top-down threat as well, in that voters find their decision-making powers taken away from them and uh, the decisions made by unaccountable elites. So... Um, Technocrats, as, as the modern terms for them. And I, I call it 
double delegation. So the effect of this is to rob democracy of its content while keeping its form. So if you go back to ancient Athens, then the, admittedly just the men, and not the women or the slaves, would gather together in a uh, forum and decide on the issues of the day. Representative democracy as it emerged in the 18th, 19th century, our modern democracy, was about us choosing representatives to vote, to make, take decisions on our, deha- on our behalf. But in so many areas, we see that those representatives now pass their decision-making on to the outside experts. Central banks is the most obvious example. Um, but there are many quangos and other authorities that take decisions. So when we vote, we're not really voting for the people who take the decisions uh, in, the, in the long run. And you can get the feedback of those two forces. If we feel both dissatisfied with the way that our society is moving and we feel that we, our vote is not listened to because the real decision makers are not elected altogether, that can just add to the disillusionment um, of the voters. Um, and let's go back to the central bankers. If you think about who are the powerful people in the global economy... Some people might say it's Angela Merkel or Barack Obama or David Cameron, but you could say just as plausibly it's Mario Draghi, it's Ben Bernanke, and it's Mark Carney. I mean, look at what happened when we hired Mark Carney. He was hired from Canada in the kind of fanfare that would greet um, or did greet Gareth Bale when he came to Real Madrid. We wanted a governor who would serve for eight years, and Mark Carney didn't want to work eight years, perhaps because he wants to go back and work in Canadian politics. So he insisted on five. So he, he was the figure that we needed to bring into office to solve all our problems. He not, not only got the salary that Mervyn King got, but a 220000 I think, uh, living allowance in, in London. Somehow, most of us in the room, I think, get by without a 220000 living allowance in London. So he was the star hire. So, yes, he's an independent, independent figure, but if you want a vote to get rid of Mark Carney, who's taking crucial decisions about our economy, about the level of interest rates, about the distribution of wealth, because people with small savers with money in the bank lose out when the Bank of England follows a low interest rate quantitative easing policy. People with lots of money in the stock market gain. So money is being shifted from one part of the population to another. The essence of an issue about which voters should care about which democracy should be. If you want to get rid of Mark Carney, who do you vote for? There's nobody to vote for. Nobody disagrees that he should be appointed. Imagine if they were to decide, yes, in theory, they could fire him. But imagine if they were to fire him. Imagine the loss of face that would fall on George Osborne from firing him. It's very difficult to imagine the circumstances in which you could get rid of him. Imagine the effect on the markets if if there was a headline the next day, government fires Bank of England head. There would be potential for collapse. So it would be almost suicidal to fire the Bank of England government. And the same applies to the ECB or the head of the Fed. So these people are extraordinarily um, important. And there's a variant of this policy, which is that we should move things to independent commissions. So some of you may have seen that last week it was suggested that there should be an infrastructure commission. So the decisions that face uh, Parliament about things like Heathrow's third runway or high-speed rail two, These are too difficult for politicians to take because they have to worry about NIMBYs. They have to worry about their constituencies uh, rebelling, about the railway going through their um, turf, or about the airport noise. So politicians always take short-term decisions, it's argued. So we need somebody to take a long-term view and avoid that problem, and then we'll get the infrastructure we need. Now, 
The difficulty with this idea that we should have experts in charge is, is I think, threefold. First, there's the idea that there's some objectively right policy that experts can agree on and the rest of us are too stupid to see. But at the LSE, you should know well enough that economists disagree violently all the time on everything. In fact, they're probably ruder about each other than any other set of academics. Um, Just look at the debates between Paul Krugman and and some of his colleagues. Um, So there's no objective reality that experts can reveal. All their decisions are subject to doubt. If you look back five or ten years, the view of all experts, whether the financial sector or most experts, should be left unregulated, it would sort itself out. Uh, and, and that we would not get a crisis as a result of too much debt. And that's been proven to be spectacularly wrong in the last five years. So experts can be as wrong as anybody else. Um, this is particularly true in the case of the EU. So if you think about the EU, one of the driving um, rationales of EU leaders in the last 20 years has been the idea of output legitimacy is what they call it. So We, the smart people in Brussels or Frankfurt or Paris, we take the big decisions about how the EU should move forward. You, uh, the voters, may not understand or agree with them, but in time you will realise the wisdom of our uh, decisions and you will come to thank us, on bended knee perhaps, um, for um, what we've done. Um, And the trouble with this, um, this view is it's monstrously arrogant. So the arrogance showed up really, I think, over the various referenda that we saw in in countries, Ireland, Denmark, Netherlands, where the voters voted the wrong way. Now, you would think that when voters have decided, that ought to be it. But no, the voters are asked to vote again until they come up with the right decision. Uh, Now, that's not really democracy. If you have to keep voting until you agree with what your leaders said, then that's not democracy, certainly, as anybody, any of the ancient thinkers would have described it. And... Thirdly, if you think about this idea that it's only experts who are smart enough or long, um, have a long-term perspective to take decisions, and the rest of us, or even our representatives, aren't smart enough to do so, that may or may not be right. It's possible that, yes, infrastructure would be better planned if people could take the 30-, 40-year view. But it's fundamentally anti-democratic. If you take that approach and say that voters are too stupid to decide on that or this matter then why not argue that voters are too stupid to decide on all matters and we should take decisions out of the hands of democracy altogether? And I think that's an extremely dangerous view. So just to emphasize, which I probably should have done at the start of this talk, that that my book is not about an argument against democracy. It's an argument that very much in favor of democracy and a worry that if we let trends continue the way they, they are, that we will undermine the whole process. So, um... We've always had this tension ever since democracy was revived in the 18th century between the idea that vote, that elected representatives are um, delegates of the voters. So therefore we vote them into office and they should do exactly what they tell us. And that they are independent figures who should exercise their own judgment on our behalf. Um, and that... The Chartists, who, if you go back to the middle of the 19th century, they believed in annual parliaments um, so that you could forever be keeping um, electorate representatives up to the mark so they would never go against their voters' wishes because they knew they'd face the electorate the next year. Now, I don't think the 
example of the House of Representatives in the US where they do, they're perpetually running for office in a two-year cycle, is very encouraging on that, on that particular score. But I do think it's a, a fundamental issue that we need to think about in terms of democracy. And, and part of the reason for this lecture in this book is to just make you all think and question what, has, what is going on. Democracy has become, because of this double delegation, a matter of just ticking a box every four or five years. And when you tick that box, you are making a decision on one in Britain, on one candidate in one constituency. And you're asked to weigh up, when you do that, a whole bunch of factors, whether he supported um, the Iraq war, whether he uh, believes in austerity or not, whether he believes in gay marriage or not, whether he believes in... Um, uh, monetary expansion or not, all these vastly different issues about which you might have strong views on one side and strongly negative views on the other, and sum it all up in just one X somewhere. And that's inherently dissatisfying. And we have this particular problem, I think, of aggregation. So we as, you as a collective audience and I may not agree on everything at all, um, anything at all, or indeed we may agree on some things and not other things. And democracy has to produce out of that sort of uh, enormous ruckus some single decision on each issue. But it's a bit like if we all went into Starbucks and tried to order a coffee and the front row wanted frappuccinos and the back row wanted lattes and the people up in the balcony wanted uh, dry... I never quite understand having wet and dry cappuccinos, but anyway... And they all wanted different things. And you ended up with a coffee that satisfied no one because it was neither hot enough nor cold enough nor too sweet or too dry. So that's a, a fundamental issue of democracy, that expressing an X once every four or five years is just not good enough to satisfy. And now that we are moving further and further away, so even that when we express an X, we are not making uh, a choice about the people who are really ruling us, and I think the dangers are carrying on. Now... Um, if you think back over history, then democracy... Sorry, this keeps falling out. Um, democracy was often seen by many philosophers as a very bad idea. Um, post the fall of Athens, many philosophers said it was democracy that brought Athens down, this classic sort of post-hoc, ergo propter hoc argument that they had. Um, even Plato and Aristotle, who we think of as sort of the great uh, thinkers of um, the ancient times, we're not very keen on democracy. Even when the, the founding fathers um, debated, as they did in the Federalist Papers, the setting up of the US Constitution, they, did, they distinguished a republic, which they wanted, from a democracy. They wanted um, anti-democratic elements within it. So the Senate was originally unelected. The president was seen as a, a figure taken, because he was elected by the Electoral College, outside democracy. He was elected by the smart people, the landowners, uh, who most of the rebel rebel leaders and the, the people who decided in the Constitutional Convention were. Um, so voters had a number, so those thinkers had a number of worries about democracy, which has really echoed down the ages. One is that we could get a rule of the stupid, so that voters who would turn up and they would be swayed by whoever spoke most eloquently at the meeting, is what sort of Plato would worry about, or you might say in the modern terms, whoever was the most effective demagogue, the Hitler or the Mussolini or whatever, whoever nowadays looks best on telly. There's a nice rule on American elections that the, the taller candidate wins, um, which is slightly worrying if that's actually how people decide things. Or the person you would most like to go for a beer with, which may or may not be a good way of choosing things. Then there was a, a, a great argument about 
the tyranny of the poor. So many of the philosophers were catering to the wealthier people of uh, their population when they talked to, those were their clients. And so they worried that uh, in a democracy, the poor would vote to take away the assets of the rich, and that was a worry to them. And then there was the, then there was the issue of the tyranny of the majority, so that voters would impose their will on the minority. So in, in an extreme case where Plato worried most that voters that uh, the Athenians voted to kill Socrates, his hero, because he was a dissident thinker. And then there was this issue of inefficiency, which comes back to this whole idea of infrastructure, or even in foreign policy crisis, that, that having democracy means you're too slow to take decisions or you don't take the right decision because you think too much about the short-term things. Now, it's not easy to deal with all these criticisms. Those of us who defend democracy have to accept that. So voters have at times followed demagogues and voted for very nasty people. Um, if you ask people about why they vote or what issues they pay attention for, it can be extremely uh, dispiriting to find that people know very little about the issues they're voting for, the, you know, the ordinary person, uh, and that they have misconceptions about things. You just look at surveys which ask people how much of the budget is spent on foreign aid, for example. They'll often say 10 or 20% when it's 1%, or they think that most um, public spending is on welfare benefits for the unemployed when it isn't. So there's a whole series of things where people failed, fail to inform themselves. Um, and there's how you frame the questions for uh, people. And, uh, there's a lovely example I found from Peter Kellner. Is, um, that he, he does opinion polls for... Um, YouGov. YouGov, thank you very much. So he asked people, uh, is £145 too much for the BBC licence fee? And 66% of the sample said yes. He then asked a different sample, is 40p a day too much to pay for the BBC licence fee? And 66% of people said no. But unfortunately, as you know, if you worked out, there's exactly the same sum. So how you, how you frame the question can be extremely important. We also know as individual voters that we have an infinitesimal chance of actually out, out, uh, influencing the outcome of the election. I'd, there's can't be, there be a handful of examples in history, and they would all be at the local level, where an election was decided by one vote. So economists who are you know, resolutely rational wonder why people bother to vote at all, in that there doesn't seem to be any point in that they can't decide the outcome. Um, and how do we deal? So how do we deal with some of these issues? Well, we can't rein back, in reining back demagogues, we risk reining back free speech. And we risk reining back new ideas, so some of the modern politicians would have seemed like demagogues to 19th century leaders, and, and um, we have to be aware of that. Um, we also have to question, with the tyranny of the majority, we have had fail, faced real issues with that too. So take the example of Northern Ireland, which was a democracy from 1920s to the early 1970s, but a democracy where a built-in majority of Protestants uh, ruled and and disadvantaged the minority of Catholics. There was nothing anti-democratic in that sense, um, but it still was a deeply dissatisfactory outcome. Or the, the South in America in, up until the 1960s and civil rights were granted where a white majority um, uh, um, disenfranchised a black minority. Um, and we struggled to deal with this in the 20th century, so democracy grew up um, on the basis of nationalism. So countries emerged as democracies, particularly after the First World War. But they often had ethnic minorities within their borders. And a lot of the trouble in the lead-up to the Second World War was about 
the difficulty in reconciling the rights of those minorities with the majority. Um, Perhaps the peace that we had post-1945, where we had a, long, a re- relatively long period when democracy did well, was to do with the fact that societies became more homogenous. After the Second World War, there was a lot of movement of populations in, within Europe, and you did get societies which felt very homogenous. But now again, we have changed again, so our societies are multicultural. So we are back to having minorities within our midst about whom people can feel suspicious. Um, there's an argument that um, you may have seen David Goodhart a prospect has made in his book that welfare states work well when the population feels that the benefits are going to people like themselves. If they start to feel that the benefits are going to outsiders, then people are less willing to see those benefits get paid. And then there's the issue of um, uh, regions within society. So you could argue that part of the problem we're facing at the moment is that Uh, we haven't really decided what the proper boundaries of our state should be. So in Catalonia, they seem to feel that Spain can no longer deliver the kind of prosperity that they want, so it's better off leave that state and start a new one. Scotland may want to do the same. And we haven't really come up with a, a good argument about what the right size of a state should be. If Scotland can secede from the United Kingdom, why can't the Shetlands and the Orkneys secede from Scotland? And would Alex Salmond allow them to have a referendum on that issue? And if not... Why not? What's the minimum size of a country? Shetland and Auckland's, Shetland and Auckland's, Shetlands and Orkneys uh, are as seem would have a right to the same right to a state as say the Seychelles or Monaco. Um, so how do you decide on that, and who decides more vitally? Um, and then within that, if we how how do we protect minority rights? So we have, there are two essential ways that people have done it. One is to have a written constitution which is very difficult to change, or the second is to let the courts do it, whether national or international. But if you think about that, that again involves a fundamental compromise with the essence of democracy. If the majority can override those constitutional constraints and reduce minority rights, then that's a potential problem. If the majority can't override those minority rights, then it's not democracy in the sense of the majority getting its own way. So that's another potential weakness that we face that uh, haven't that uh, hasn't really been resolved. Another issue that we face in the modern times, I think, and it relates back to this idea of despising politicians, is the tendency of people, uh, thanks to the internet in part, to flock together like like minds. So people now, particularly in the States, cease to get their news from the old sources, the three main networks, the established newspapers. They look via the internet to the websites they appreciate. And the websites they appreciate, tend to parrot the views they already have. So there's a deep problem with confirmation bias. If you think that Barack Obama is a secret Muslim communist, you will look at all the websites that say that, and that um, any website that doesn't say that, you will think is only run by secret Muslim communists who are trying to hide the real evidence. Or vice versa. It doesn't really matter what the view is. You will tend only to believe people who um, take your own view. Um, And these conspiracies are just seem to multiply with every year. So whether it's you know, 9-11 as an inside job, Diana's death being faked, which has kept the Daily Express going for 20 years, any of those things, um, people will believe in. And the more they believe in them, and the more they don't, get, uh, they don't test any outside view to, to, prove, to in- indicate that a belief might be a bit woolly-minded, um, the greater their suspicion of the people that are running society. Now, personally, as somebody who studied history, I, 
I'm a great believer in a cock-up theory of history. You know, if you think of what's happened in the last 40 or 50 years and the way that um, countries have been run, the idea that, say, um, somebody successfully faked the moon landing and kept it secret for the last 44 years with nobody revealing it when we've had, you know, Edward Snowden, WikiLeaks and all the rest, it's just absolutely ludicrous. But there are still people, you can find the websites if you like, who will, you know, go on about how there was a fluttering of the wind on the flag and it can't be possible on the moon and other. But, again, you start to then to view that societies are run by, for the benefit of a few. So it's the Bilderberg group, or it's foreigners, or it's Jews, or whatever. And then you, again, turn to the extremes and away from the mainstream parties. And the tone of our political debate has genuinely been coarsened over those last 50 years. We do turn and trust to these new, new services, but we don't question them in the same vigorous way that we might. So, for example, the Boston bombing, you recall a few months ago, there was a lot of coverage on Twitter, uh, a lot of coverage on other instant news services, and one person was almost immediately identified as a potential bombing suspect um, and had to move out of his house and all the rest of it, when it was absolutely nothing to do with him whatsoever. And that... The old saying that the lies round the world um, before the truth can get its boots on is particularly appropriate to the Internet age. Now, all that's happening. So we, we have the evidence of this voter disquiet in the turnout figures. So there's some graphs in the book. Um, 40 years, basically, turnout has been declining pretty solidly across the Western world. If you go back to Britain, in 1974, the turnout was 78% of the electorate in, in that election of the first of those elections, I think. And it was only 61% of the electorate last time. The consequence of that, of that and the way that the electorate has um, diversified away from the two main parties means that if you go back to 2005, uh, that was just a 58.3% uh, turnout. And Labour won that election with quite a decent majority. Its share of the vote was... 35%. So in actual fact, just 20% of all potential voters backed the government. And then that government came into power with the right to do all sorts of things in terms of changing laws. At the same time, we have, as, that, as voters don't turn out anymore, voters don't join political parties anymore. Who wants to spend you know, a, a summer evening trekking along to a Labour Party or Conservative Party meeting? Um, but yet our political systems are still built as if mass participation is, is real. So often candidates are selected on the basis of party members. Uh, now you have a, this problem comes up a lot in the states where gerrymandering, the arrangement of um, constituencies to keep one party in office, means that you have to worry much more about uh, a challenger from your own party than you do about the potential challenge from the other party. So there's a natural tendency to appeal to the extremists within your own ranks in order to get elected, uh, and with the result that you get um, elected members who are more and more extreme over time. So in America, the threat is not particularly new extreme parties. It's that the parties themselves get further and further apart, uh, and you get people you know, on the Republican side, for example, who have barely uh, registered the Enlightenment in terms of you know, understanding that science actually... Uh, needs to be used when you think about issues like women's health and uh, evolution and all the rest of it. Um, and it's harder to govern our societies if you genuinely believe that people on the other side are traitors or fools 
or secret conspirators. Another problem, I think, another threat, is that um, a liberal democracy is not just about voting, as I've been trying to say. It's about a whole bunch of things, free speech, the right to assemble, the right to have a fair trial, these basic civil liberties. Britain wasn't a democracy in the mid-19th century, but it was arguably a lot more liberal than a notionally democratic Russia is today. You know, while Britain was ruled by aristocrats and um, rich men in the 19th century, Karl Marx was peaceably uh, working in the reading room of the British Museum, plotting to bring it down um, entirely unmolested. Um, you can't imagine that in Russia at the moment. Um, and our basic freedoms have been eroded over the last 10 years or so in this idea of the war on terror. Uh, and this is very difficult for democratic politicians to uh, oppose because in the wake of any given atrocity, atrocity, it's seen as unpatriotic or pandering to terrorists to put civil liberties ahead of the security of the nation. But the powers are extremely sweeping that nations take on in this role. And as we've seen in recent months, of course, with all the revelations, um, that they, they usually vastly exceed the narrow anti-terrorism um, justification that they're given. Uh, and they never seem to retreat. So we still have to take off our shoes at, ex at airports because some idiot Richard Reed decided to shoe, shoe bomb. We still have to, um, I still have to throw away my suntan cream if I return from holiday, if I've accidentally left it in my carry-on baggage because of the liquid plot or, of a few years ago. But more seriously, we sort of um, collude in the undermining of these age-old liberties, you know, the right to free speech, the right to privacy with, with our emails and phone calls being monitored. We lose the right to a fair trial. Um, Guantanamo Bay is internment without trial, something which Britain did, of course, in the 1970s in Northern Ireland, which was a disastrous way of um, recruiting people to the, the IRA's cause. And we've done this in the past in history. I mean, the Americans interned Japanese civilians in, in World War II. And in subsequent years, we regret and think how stupid we were to do that. And then in any given uh, time that we forget that example and we go through the whole process already all over again. And this is coming back to this modern problem that the danger is we have a minority within our population of, of Muslims that we then if we treat them as alien and that creates a reaction from them we use that reaction to justify the fact that they are alien and then we create this kind of feedback loop in which we just step up um, the um, security uh, measures and the acts of repression and we make matters all the more worse and this was shown you know, in microcosm with the ridiculous fuss about the Ground Zero mosque in New York, which was neither a mosque nor at Ground Zero, but which occupied the American media for um, six months or so two years ago. So let me get to the, the fundamental issue which we face, which is that the bargain of democracy, really, if you think about the last 100 years, why has democracy succeeded? It's, been, it's come into place with prosperity. So vote, elect, uh, politicians deliver prosperity and voters thank them for it by voting for them. And the, we vote for the person who we think will basically make the economy better off. It's the economy stupid, as, as Bill Clinton's campaign slogan is. But what's happened in the last five years is we seem to have run out of the ability of politicians to deliver prosperity. And that's for very interesting long-term reasons, that we did allow the financial system to get out of control and debts to get out of control, and that in the 
a period when we have, we're trying to bring down those debts, it's very difficult to deliver economic growth. It's also very difficult to deliver it when demography is changing. So the baby boomers, of which I'm one, who came through the population and moved into the workforce and boosted um, economic growth, are now starting to retire. So over the next 20 or 30 years, we're going to see fewer workers, not more workers in many Western nations. It's very difficult, and LSE audience will know, to deliver economic growth with fewer workers. Economic growth comes from the number of workers you have and productivity, making the workers work better. If you have a fallen number of workers, you have to have a fantastic productivity performance to generate economic growth. But unfortunately, our economic performance hasn't um, been good at all. So we're trying to pay off these debts in a circumstance when we aren't growing at all. And this is, going, this is, as I argued in my last book, this is the sort of fundamental conflict of the next 10 or 20 years. It's going to pit old against young, rich against poor, um, public sector workers against taxpayers, and one nation against another. And we've already seen within, uh, the, as a result of the financial crisis, old nasty stereotypes um, coming back. So the Germans portray the Greeks as sort of feckless Mediterranean layabouts and the, German, the Greeks portray the Germans as domineering Nazis. And that just adds to this air of tension that we have in the world. And we have another problem in that, which has always existed in that while we as voters can vote for the policies we like, we can't vote for the money, necessarily vote for the money to pay for them. We, can, we, can, we have a tendency to vote for more spending but not for the taxes to pay for it. Now, if we end up borrowing the money to pay for that difference, in the end we will become dependent on foreign creditors. And the one thing we can't do is make creditors lend us more money. Or if they do lend us more money, they will insist on conditions for doing so as the voters of Greece and Ireland and Portugal and Spain are doing so are realising at the moment. And in that case, again, democracy takes second place to the demands of the creditors. The voters do not get their way. Outside creditors get their way. And again, that acts to undermine uh, the very idea of democracy in the first place. We have a, another problem, which is that the huge rise in government uh, over the last 100 years of democracy means that governments, as Willie Sutton said of banks, is where the money is. So governments are where special interests focus on lobbying because they want the tax break or the subsidy. So we have this huge um, drive to influence our politicians, whether by lobbying or funding them directly. The US election we just had uh, cost about $6 billion in terms of funding. And all that, not to change the president, not to change control of the Senate, and not to change control of the House of Representatives. So what happens as a result of that is we get a system that... Uh, theorist called Mankor Olson looked at 30 or 40 years ago, where if you're a special interest and you want, say, a subsidy on, I don't know, um, the one he has in the, in the book, mohair production. Very few people make mohair, um, so a subsidy for them is worth you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of each. For the rest of us, the cost of that mohair subsidy is a few pence per person. So you have a huge incentive to lobby for that subsidy to be maintained if you are the producer and very little incentive to lobby it for it to be uh, uh, deleted if you're a consumer. So what happens? Then the lobbying goes on one side and not the other. So over time we get a huge build-up of these costs and subsidies and the system gets corrupted and made less efficient. Um, and what can happen then is you get the feedback process where the rich... Um, 
are the people who can afford to fund candidates. The candidates then use, uh, develop policies which favour the rich, and that gives the rich more money to, to fund the candidates, and so you get a vicious circle going on. So why have bankers done so well in the last 30 years? Because the economic system has been um, rigged, as it were, in their favour with deregulation, with central banks constantly intervening when markets falter to rescue them, till we've got in the current situation where we have central banks outwardly buying assets to try and uh, prop up Wall Street. So what worries me about that is if you think about how democracy grew. So democracy grew in the 19th century because people demanded that they be recognised and they had the economic power to push those demands through. So first it was the, the middle classes with the Great Reform Act and the Second Reform Act of 1867. Uh, second, it was industrial workers through their power um, in the late 19th century and early 20th century and then, of course, women in the, after the First World War. So the vote was given to them because they demonstrated power in the first place rather than um, power being freely granted to them. If economic power moves more and more in favour of an elite a rich elite, and inequality has been widening in the Western, much of the Western world for the last 30 years, then that only encourages political power to move in the same direction as well. You listen to your rich constituents when you're a congressman because they're the ones who are going to get you re-elected. Um, there's some interesting studies which show the correlation of the votes of congressmen and their rich voters is nearly perfect. There's no correlation of the votes of congressmen and their poor voters because the poor voters don't fund them and often they don't vote at all. So that's a particular problem that we face. Um, now, having said all that, uh, no, I want, I, want, I want to raise one more issue. Sorry, I don't want to speak too long. One other issue, very important issue, is international issues in democracy. The nation state and democracy grew up together. Indeed, forming a democracy was a way of getting out from under the heel of absolute monarchs. Um, but many of the issues that we face today are not national at all. They're international, whether it's global warming or it's terrorism or it's chasing down people in tax havens. One country acting on its own is not going to be sufficient. You need many countries acting together. But we have been absolutely hopeless at um, bringing together democracy and international issues. Yes, we have the European uh, Parliament, but the uh, Turnout for that is even poorer than it is for national votes. And most, I doubt if many of you in this room could name who your European MEP is. And I think that's true of most people in Europe. Um, we also, of course, have multinational bodies, the IMF, the World Trade Organization, that um, make rulings that can affect our livelihoods. And whilst they are, in theory, subject to national governments withdrawing from them, it's extremely difficult for those national governments to do so. Um, but how could we possibly um, reconcile global decisions with democracy? If we had one man, one vote, imagine that China could outvote the US and Western Europe all on its own. I can't see many people in Western Europe or the US um, going for that. Um, and nor does it seem that the UN has proved a very good vehicle of it. There are two bits of the UN where votes take place. There's the General Assembly where votes take place but everybody ignores them. And there's the Security Council where they have vetoes, which effectively means, as we're seeing at the moment, complete paralysis of decision-making if the big powers disagree. So all of those threats come together. Now, you might say all of those threats have been around for 30, 40 years. Why are you particularly worried at the moment? 
Well, I think a psychological point is worth making that we, they have taken, they have been around for a long time, but we're generally a dissatisfied species. We like to complain, particularly in Britain. And um, we like to rebel. Now, when we had monarchies and when we had um, military dictatorships, we rebelled against them because they were the powers that be. Now we have democracies, the temptation might be to rebel against that. If we feel that they, we have a choice between two parties, both of which are really vanilla, then um, that is what will drive us to rebel against that. Like Marlon Brando in The Wild Ones, we re- he asked what you're rebelling against. He was asked what you're rebelling against. He said, well, what you got? And we're rebelling, we might rebel against democracy because it's what we've got. Eastern Europeans rebelled against communism, even though in 1985 you might have thought that communism would last in Eastern Europe forever. In 1913 you might have thought that absolute monarchies would rule in Austria-Hungary and Russia forever, but they were gone in several years. So don't be complacent and think that it must last forever. So what's to be done about it? Well, um, I'd love to tell you I have a 36-point plan that will solve all, all the solutions, but I have just a few suggestions. I don't think it's necessary the amount of a question of changing the voting system. We could have um, more referenda, but California's example where referenda have been used quite a lot and with an unsatisfactory outcome. There's a problem with a referenda if you have people who are allowed to vote, yes, I believe that taxes should be kept down on the one hand, and yes, I believe that spending should go up on the other, and they're not required to reconcile those two matters. Um, But having said that, I think that, uh, and and if you look at recent attempts to extend democracy in Britain, like uh, police commissioners or local mayors, they've not exactly been um, greeted with popular enthusiasm. But I think we could make it a lot easier for people to vote for a start. So if we can all make um, bank transactions over the internet and if we can all buy goods over the internet, it can't be beyond the wit of man for us to be able to vote over the internet and to have a way of securely recognising our vote. And if people don't have to track, track down to a wet polling station, then that would help. Second, the economic issue really needs to be fixed. Um, and that's going to you know, result in some unpopular um, decisions, I, I fear. But I think if we want to keep the welfare state in a world where we are struggling to deal with our debts, then we are going to have to re focus the welfare state on the people it was designed for, the poor. So what's happened over the last 70 years is that governments have bought off the middle classes by saying, well, they worry that the middle class would think the welfare state was a boondoggle for someone else and they were paying for it. So we've had all these things added on over the years, child benefit for rich people, uh, pension tax relief at the highest possible rate, uh, which are enormously expensive. Uh, and it's particularly true in the US where, for example, you know, the the bulk of the benefits for mortgage interest relief go to the richest part of the population because they own the biggest houses and have the biggest mortgages. So we're going to have to focus it down on the people who really need it, on, on the poor. The other thing that we need to think is these, this double delegation problem. I think it's not discussed enough and it's a real problem. Now, one role for the upper house in uh, parliaments is to take that on. The upper houses in many countries have this sort of vague uh, and unsatisfactory role, particularly the case in Britain. But if the MPs aren't expert enough to keep an eye on the central bank or the NICE or uh, all the other quangos, then the upper house could do that. And where they feel that the quango has exceeded their power, they could um, call a referendum and ask the public to vote on it. We wouldn't want to do that too much, but that would be a way of the upper house 
keeping a control on things and giving us a, a further say. And the final thing, my final point, is we need to recognise that the fault's not in David Cameron or Francois Hollande or Angela Merkel because it's in ourselves that this is a result of 70 years of us not recognising some of the difficult choices that we face in a democracy. And if we don't vote, and if we don't turn out, and if we don't pay attention, we can't complain if the wrong result uh, occurs. We have to study and understand and think, put ourselves in the same position as a British Prime Minister and say, what, would you really want to be Prime Minister? Would you really want your used to be photographed on the beach on holiday looking rather flabby? Would you really, really want, you know, the details of your children to be photographed when they emerge? Would you really want to have eggs thrown at you, all the rest of it? It's not an easy job. And we have to think, if we say we want taxes to come down, we have to say, well, what spending would you cut? Be specific, please. Or if you say you want spending to stay high, which taxes would you raise? On whom? How are you going to keep those people in the country? How are you going to make sure they pay the taxes? We have to put ourselves in the same place and ask the same question and take an, an interest. Uh, we have to face the fact that you can't raise a huge amount of tax solely by focusing on the rich. And if you're on the right, you can't shrink the state solely by eliminating waste. Real people will suffer either way. Um, so if we can no longer, so to come to the title of, our book, of my book, if we can no longer ex experience every election as people in Egypt and, uh, have recently, as if it was our first, we can treat it as if it was our last. We can think to ourselves... If I vote this time for the monster-raving loony party or wherever it happens to be, um, then I might get stuck with that person. Do I really want to use my vote so trivially? Or do I think about who, is going to, who might I vote for if I thought they'd be in office in 10 years' time, not just next week? So don't vote. We have to not vote just on protest grounds. We have to make sure we're monitoring our leaders and looking for those with realistic programs. And, and it's a lesson other countries have learned before, that if you elect an extremist in haste, then you'll repent at leisure. And if you leave the elite to get on with it on the grounds, <coughs> excuse me, if you leave the elite to get on with it on the grounds that politics is all too boring and all too complex, you'll get policies that are, that favour the elite and not favour the ordinary person. So, we won't get, to sum up, we won't get government for the people <coughs> unless we get more government by the people. Thank you very much. Okay, we've got plenty of time for questions. I'm going to ask you to indicate, please wait until you're called, and then a microphone will come to you. So let me start with, I'll take a group of questions together, the two gentlemen on the side here first and then second, and then I'll take two from upstairs, the gentleman in the short sleeve white shirt, and then, yeah. Okay, please. Um, I was surprised that you didn't say more about increasing inequality. In, uh, at a time of mounting uh, austerity. And it seems to me that Western democracies in particular face a kind of trilemma that you can have any two of three. You can have rising inequality provide, uh, and democracy, you know, provided everybody's living standards are rising. You can have um, austerity provided you have 
a degree of inequality in democracy, but you can't have mounting inequality, continuing indefinite austerity, and democracy. Because ultimately, the voters will vote against that. So I wonder if you have any comments on the idea that there is a trilemma. You can have any two of three. Uh, rising inequality, continuous austerity, and democracy. Thank you. Gentlemen in the brown hat. Wait till the microphone comes. Uh, what we need is the original democracy. Democritus was a contemporary of Sophocles, and he invented it, but he shunned universal franchise. Why? <clears throat> well, the economic process is about trade, as Adam Smith told us. Only... <clears throat> There's a hidden hand that turns the pursuit of self-interest, which is greed, to the common good. Now, how can that be? And that is the definition, basically, of economics, the basis of economics. <clears throat> when you buy greens from the greengrocer, you want the greens more than the greengrocer, and the greengrocer wants the money more than the greens. So have you have both added to your wealth. So that's how wealth addition, in other words, wealth creation from nowhere. You made your uh, profit from the uh, trade, and so did the greengrocer, from nowhere. Now how on earth can you make money from nowhere? Make real wealth it is as well. Yeah. It's not the million could you, money. Could you, could you bring this to a... So that, um, a point. What, what happened then yeah. was that um, Karl Marx came along, of course, and he recognised how powerful a motivation of envy is. All he had to do was to say, look how greedy he is, look how poor you are, right. and you'll get a whole mass of people behind you. So envy is the basis of, is inevitable under one person, one vote. Inevitable. We have a tyranny of the envious majority, and the only way to get rid of it is to go back to proper democracy, the true democracy, by giving the House of Lords, right. the rich people, a £1,000 uh, that they paid for tax, should go to one vote for the House of, someone in the House of Lords thereby giving the wealth creators the power to create wealth instead of uh, giving it, throwing it down the bottom okay. pit could, could, could you, of welfare. Could, can can uh, I take some more questions? So. Oh, well, I'm going to say those two comments were both okay. about the intersection between economics and politics and from right. different <laughs> angles. But... Um, you have a queue of people who want to... Oh, absolutely. No, just so, very so quickly answer. I agree with you, sir, that it is a, on the inequality problem, that it is a problem. Um, and I'm sorry that I didn't mention it more in my speech. Uh, it's, there's plenty about it in the book. And, and I suppose it addresses this gentleman's issue about whether um, democracy has led to this sort of triumph of envy um, and the reduction of wealth capacity. Of course, you, you might have made that point in the late 1970s, I suppose, when we had 98% tax rates. But, of course... The last 30 years, we've seen this massive widening of, of inequality. So it doesn't, doesn't seem as if the 
Democrats have been dragging down the rich. But yes, to go back to your point, sir, I think that is the, that is the essence of the problem. So the, the politicians have not delivered prosperity. The game seems rigged in favour of the elite few, and that's, that's one of the reasons the voters will rebel. And I, I'd absolutely agree as a writer for The Economist that in free markets and the right of businesses to exist and make profits and all, all the rest of it. The question over the last 30 years is whether you think unbridled free markets will necessarily result in a perfect outcome. And in the financial sector, it would seem that if you have um, a system where central banks can step in and subsidize the financial sector, either through the implicit guarantee of banks or via cutting interest rates when the market falters, that, that that's not a free market in the um, generally recognized sense. And if you have extremely complex financial products that insiders are selling and outsiders don't understand, that's not quite the same free exchange as somebody selling Brussels sprouts at the greengrocers that, that we've learned over the last 30 years that if we leave the financial markets totally unchecked, then we can go down the road to disaster. Okay, the two gentlemen. A short one. How do you think the Internet age is changing democracy? Excellent. And then the gentleman on the other side, in the white shirt just in front of you. That's it. Thank you. Short question. Yeah. Uh, you made a case about, uh, uh, you know, uh, rich people buying politicians, and uh, I think I agree there's a lot of that going on. But from, from uh, where I come from in Italy, it's uh, also quite... Uh, quite often happens uh, quite the opposite. Like uh, politicians, especially in uh, underdeveloped areas of the country, buy lots of votes. Like, you want to be elected uh, in your average Sicilian town, there are three people you have to talk with. They control not everybody, but they control enough votes uh, to swing the, the seat uh, towards your, uh, your party. Don't you think this is uh, also a problem? Thank you. And then just the gentleman in the back on there. Yeah. We'll take those three. Yeah, I was going to say more than three at once. I'll forget yeah. who first. Don't worry, I, I've got them. I'll remind <laughs> you. Um, uh, just two quick points. Firstly, how important, you didn't really touch on uh, the media and how important that is for democracy because the founding fathers of America actually supported public subsidies for the media, while nowadays we just assume corporations should run the media. And secondly, you talked about how people should just get out there and vote, but what about on the ballots, um, a box where you tick that you don't feel that any of the candidates you right, think none of you the want above. to vote for, yeah. why, why has that never been introduced? Okay, uh, so you've got right. internet age, yep. buying votes, yes. media, public subsidy, and none of the above on the ballot paper. Absolutely. So, well, the, on the internet, um, I think it's, it's a very mixed blessing. So uh, one of the points I was trying to make is that people have um, focused on the websites that reflect their views and you get lead to this confirmation bias that um, obviously I suppose you could say I have an interest as a journalist uh, who wants people to read more considered views but you, you, know, you can sometimes see the, economist, the comments on the Economist website that if we deal with anything that touches on nationalism at all then the comments start to abuse each other and it goes on for sort of several hundred where it's just not a dialogue at all but a sort of ranting at, it, at each other or, or at the, the original writer. Um, and that's a particular problem. On the other hand, it has led to the ability of people to get information in a way that they um, weren't 
as easily able to get before. And somehow we need to emphasize that good part of the Internet again. So it's possible now on the Internet for any voter to figure out exactly how much of the government budget is spent on all the different items and how much is raised from the various items of, uh, of tax. Uh, and it's possible, you could argue, for the mainstream media to do more of that. There's some, some good examples in the U.S. election where they, when they have a presidential debate where people go through a kind of truth watch and they say, well, which of those politicians' claims can be justified by the facts? And that's much easier to do than it used to be. Um, but I fear in recent years we've had more of the abuse-sounding, um, abuse-throwing bit of the Internet and less of the, the good bit of the Internet, and I'm only hoping that people tire of it, that, you know, who wants to sort of... Um, take part in that sort of debate when you can come to excellent events at the LSE you can have a more civilised discussion now on the, the your point about clientelism I would call it so in Greece you know yes you get jobs for the boys uh, yes again the, the, this was a 40 minute lecture about a 300 page book but I think the problem is we've done both in the last 70 years so we've been able because we've had a decent level of economic growth both to give subsidies and tax breaks to the you know, rich people who have demanded them and to give um, jobs for the boys and to expand the public sector. And now we face that choice that we can't have both of them at the same time. And it's a, it's a, that's why it's such a difficult battle over the next 10 or 20 years and why, you know, um, not everybody, you know, you, you have, do have to take some harsh decisions. If you're paying lots of people in the public sector to do jobs which are effectively pointless, then I'm afraid you're going to have to have some public sector cuts in those areas if you want the economy to grow. And now it's extremely difficult to decide which jobs are pointless, of course, but in principle you cannot leave an entirely unchanged public sector if it takes a large part of the economy. And that, that's a difficult factor to grow. I mean, if you think about what makes economies grow, as that gentleman was alluding to, it, it's this process of creative destruction where over time we have to move you know, people out of old industries and into new industries. And within capitalism that does work quite well. So we no longer buy Amstrad computers, we buy... Apple um, instead, because the, we can get rid of those businesses and our, as consumers we have a choice to choose a new one. In the public sector that's much more difficult. So we definitely, in Europe, we need reform in the public sector as well as making sure that we don't have inefficient subsidies to, bit, you know, to elites within, such as the financial sector. Uh, and the last question was... Um, public subsidy of the press and then right, public none of the above yeah. on the ballot paper. Yes, well, of course, we have uh, the BBC in Britain, which uh, my wife works for, I have to confess, but so I think is a, you know, when you go to the US and try and find the news, which I was just in the US on holiday, there's the news is on at half past five, and even on cable news channels, they never have the news. They have lots of sort of guys with, you know, suntan or um, <laughs> ranting uh, for half an hour about what they think about the news, but you never have five minutes where you think, oh, what's happening in Egypt? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and, and so PBS. the BBC is a great uh, triumph. Public subsidy of the press leads worryingly into, you know, uh, magazines controlled by the press. I, I have to remind you that if we're trading historic history on it, that the founding fathers within about seven or eight years had the um, Sedition and Alien Acts of 1797, I think it was, to try and suppress the press because John Adams felt that they were all accusing him of favouring the British over the French, and there, there was a whole business about that. Do, why can't we have a none of the above um, pass on our paper? Well, people spoil their ballot papers when they think none of the above, don't they? So we have that option. I'd rather urge you not to say none of the above because that's kind of opting out of your responsibilities as a citizen. I, I think if you think that none of the above are appropriate, then stand 
and you know go amongst your fellow students or whatever and and campaign on your open program and and then test it out that that's what i think people should do who think none of the above i know it's not easy thank you there's a lady lady at the back uh, above and then i'll take a couple more up there so that's it thank you I think the classic idea of democracy is that you're representing the people up here. Sorry. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but I think the perception nowadays is that politicians aren't representing the people, they're representing corporations. And a good example of that is there was a New York Times article last year that talked about fundraising of the congressman and how much time was spent on fundraising. And it was like almost 90% of their time. And how many favors are they buying? How much of what they're voting for is completely based on corporate interest? And this is really worrying, I think, for the average citizen. How could the politicians earn back the trust of the people? Gentlemen, just a little bit further along. That's it. Do you think that um, people with um, higher IQ should have more than one vote? <laughs> uh, that might solve your problem of um, stupid people voting for stupid things. <laughs> and um, my second question is that... Okay. Um, uh, that, that's quite a big uh, first question. <laughs> but go on, quickly. My, my second question is that um, it, it seems that, do you think that in democracy, especially Western democracies, there are too many politicians uh, who come from a law, a legal background, who used to be lawyers, uh, making uh, democracy more of a popularity contest, whereas in countries who are less democratic or more author authoritarian with high economic growth, the politicians seem to come from engineering and technocrat backgrounds. Do you think we need more technocrats and less lawyers in, the, uh, in government and democracy. Thank you. And then the gentleman just further down, three or four lines, that's it on the end there, the glasses. And then we'll answer those. Um, you didn't mention it in your, in your talk, but um, can I ask you about Iceland? Iceland stood up and said, um, like the outside creditors were not exactly getting the money from Iceland. There was an article in the paper last week that the British government were bailing out people who had money in Iceland banks and um, you know, can you talk a bit about that where the Iceland people said no like I think that the may I don't know how it, it's panning out but sure. I, I think the Iceland people they might get the money eventually to the banks but it's it's definitely a long drawn out process Okay, yep. we'll, 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 we'll take those. A variety of topics. Yeah, so corporations yep. versus the people, and then plural votes or votes for the uh, intelligent, <laughs> and then the issue about legislators versus engineers, Absolutely. and then Iceland. Uh, I think I did allude, I hope, to the problem of corporate you know, fundraising and, and corporations in my vote, and, and there's plenty of it in the book, and there are interesting... Um, books written by Larry Bartels wrote a very good book about this um, three or four years ago as a US professor um, uh, about how politicians only mix in the same circles, not just that I think they get funded by companies, but the way that they operate, they don't tend to end up in many soup kitchens or whatever they, the people they meet just uh, tend to be people who are from the better off um, and, and that, that influences their views as well um, and my answer to that in the US example is that you need to limit funding. You need to limit spending, sorry. So, you know, whatever you think of the British government at, at the moment, or uh, you, you sounded American, but if you've been in a British election, we have a very lively election system. As far as most Britons are concerned, the fact it's limited to four weeks is good, and that's plenty of it. Thank you very much. 
We have a, you know, again, the press has its many faults, but there are different papers which vehemently support one side or the other. We have lots of coverage on the, the television, and it all cost, our last election cost 30 million, and the last US election cost $6 billion. Um, so it's not a case that you don't get free speech if you limit campaign spending, and it's a great source of great regret that the Supreme Court decided otherwise um, in that Citizens United case a few years ago. Um, the votes for um, more intelligent people. John Stuart Mill believed in that, or at least he believed in, that you should have to pass an intelligence test before voting at all. And um, my father, funnily enough, is one of the people who, who had two votes. So he voted, he was a Cambridge graduate. He voted in 1945 election. He used to have a university seat for the, you know, the smart people to get somebody in Parliament. They, they voted in a guy called A.P. Herbert, who's a comic writer. So there's no, no necessarily you get that. <laughs> You wouldn't get Einstein or Sartre or something going in necessarily on that, on that principle. Um, but I, you know, I don't think you can seriously uh, take that. I mean, there used to be an argument, and there still is an argument by some on the right, that tax, you know, government's all about spending taxes. If you pay the taxes, um, then it's you, know, you who should decide how that money is given because it's, it's your money. And that was basically the reason you had a, often a... Um, requirement for, for owning property or whatever before you could vote in the 19th century and 18th centuries and so on. But I think the fundamental principle of democracy is that laws apply to all of us. We can all get arrested leaving this meeting for, you know, spitting on the sidewalk or whatever it is. Um, and those laws are decided by our legislators. Uh, and if we are subject to those laws, we should have a right in saying who should decide them. And I, given the performance of very smart people, supposedly, during the, in the run-up to the financial crisis and over various, various foreign policy issues. I'm not sure that you can argue that very smart people take very smart decisions. Um, the second too point, many lawyers versus too, many lawyers too versus few engineers. engineers. That's a sort of Chinese government point, though, isn't it? The Chinese government. Are very, I mean, I think that's another potential threat to democracy. You could say that the Chinese say, well, we don't really need democracy because we're delivering 7 or 8% growth every year and without all this business of, you know... Um, Elections and um, free speech and all the rest of it. Um, and I, that, is, that may seem to people a convincing argument as time goes on. I've, I think that's a worry. Yes, it would be much better if we had m many more divergent people in politics. But that comes back, I think, to the media and the way we all treat politicians. I, mean, I don't know how many people in this room would want to be an MP, but it's not a very appealing outcome, it seems to me. You, you have to be peculiarly thick-skinned to think you want to spend your entire life being abused by people so you can sit on the sort of, so you can be Minister for, of State for Overseas <laughs> Development or something. It, it just doesn't seem a great trade-off if you're very smart and you can work for a big company or be a doctor or something. It seems more rewarding. Uh, and in Iceland. Iceland, I yes. Iceland. I, yes, I went to Iceland in the middle of the crisis. Yeah, they're not paying back. Yeah. It's, our banks, it was a sort of complex issue. <clears> they said no. They don't have the money to pay it all back. Um, the government did step in to guarantee those deposits with IceSave and all the rest of it, and it's trying to get the money back from Iceland. Now, I, Iceland's gone through an IMF program. Has, it's just had GDP figures out. It, the GDP has fallen again. So it's had a pretty rough three or four years, but you're right. In the end, when countries have too much debt, they don't pay their foreign creditors. Um, Argentina is another example of a country that's done that. That's what, what happens. The foreign creditors 
well, occasionally Western powers have invaded countries that haven't paid back their debts, but by and large they don't. Um, so you can get away with that. Of course, what you can't guarantee is that they'll lend you money in future. So if you say the answer to austerity is, well, we're just going to not pay back the money we've borrowed, then you won't be able to borrow money. You probably have to balance the budget going forward because you won't be able to borrow from outside in those circumstances. So you may end up with some of the, a lot of the austerity anyway. We'll talk about... Iceland didn't have, sorry. Iceland, Iceland. Yes. Of what? Yes. Well, they have had. They have had a very deep recession. Yes. No, no, no. I've got a queue of questions. Yes, You've yes, already yes, had yes. one, so thank you. <laughs> yeah. There's a lady at the middle here, and I'll take three more from the front, and then I think we're going to have to wind things up. So. Uh, thank you. I'll I'll try to make this fast. In defense of American news, they they only did just this weekend show photos of what had happened in Syria with the gassings, but they do show lots of cute puppies. <laughs> um, I'm, and, and also in defense, um, um, Democrats abroad UK, when, they, when various states in America tried to change voting laws, voting registrations, which would affect people voting abroad, um, we did get massively organized, made thousands and thousands and thousands of phone calls and got people registered. And so there are efforts to try to do. What is your opinion on what on earth the Supreme Court in the United States did with gutting the Voting Rights Act? Yes, again, it's um, disappointing. Any measure which um, appears to um, lead to disenfranchisement is worrying. Um, I think, you know, American democracy is still very vibrant because of lots of people do campaign about it. I think the worry for American, the main worry for an American democracy is the influence of money and secondly the fact that constituencies are so gerrymandered that it's very difficult to unseat your congressman. So whatever it is, 80-90% of congressmen who are elected stay elected if they choose to run for office again. Um, clearly the Republicans you know, are trying to believe that Obama is supported by the poor, you know, the 59, what, what proportion was it that Romney was on about? 47%. Yeah. You know, there's all these people who vote for him who don't care and are trying to restrict that. But um, thanks to you, I, I hope, people like you, hopefully that, that effort will be countermanded. But again, it will add to the cynicism of ordinary voters if they feel the system is being rigged to stop them voting at all, for, from voting at all. Lady there. Trying to answers, the lady there in the purple. So first. Um, I'm wondering what your opinions are here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> on, on the one hand, the um, compulsory voting like it takes place in Australia, and on the other hand, on the Swiss um, system of direct democracy, where you get people voting for referenda that, in, that afterwards are considered to go against basic human rights. Yeah. Uh, good. Okay, Do you want to take the other question? You, or? Um, yeah, come yeah, on. Let's take your question. Yes. Uh, this is a comment about democracy and international issues. If within the national level we may see, say that democracy has not delivered prosperity and employment among others, in the international level democracy has not delivered peace, nor even in the cases where uh, there has been armed confrontation uh, under the idea of bringing peace to those countries. So I would like to hear some comments about peace and democracy. Peace as a, the central promise of Western democracy. Right. Okay. So let's take those two. Okay. 
Broad issues. Um, Compulsory voting. Compulsory voting. Well, they do have it in certain countries. We have seen a decline in voting turnout even in the countries where it's compulsory. Uh, and um, <laughs> as I think I mentioned, I was talking to an Australian who you know, was going just to spoil his ballot paper. So you can do that. Um, I, I, I can see that it might help uh, and it might make, if you can get more people to vote, and as we were saying before, and it's a particular problem that the, the poor don't vote and the young don't vote in enough num numbers. So again, we baby boomers have landed you young people with all these debts and you're not sufficiently motivated to go out and, and vote about it is, is, is a worry but it may be something that people develop over time um, sorry there was a follow up direct democracy oh, direct Swiss, democracy in Switzerland yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, well, I think democ direct democracy is fine but again you have to worry about um, special interests and funding so if you look at California if you have a, a um, a vote on a particular issue that matters to only a small section of the population, and that small section of the population will vote and the others won't bother, and the small section of the population that benefits most from the subsidy or whatever it is will spend a lot on the campaign and the other people won't. So then the outcome is almost determined by the fact that you have special interests behind it. So I think you need to, if you do have those referenda, you need to have public campaigns of information, you need to limit campaign spending, and you do fall back on that, one of the central dilemmas of democracy that um, I did allude to, which is this diff difficulty of reconciling majority rights and the rights of the minority. So it was banning minarets, wasn't it, in Switzerland? Mm. Um, there was how do you... This is a you know, big issue going forward. Um, in that if, the, if you liberal people you know, are against hanging and in favour of immigration, for example... But it may well be the majority of people are in favour of hanging and of banning all immigration. So how do you, if you believe in democracy and you believe in minority rights and liberalism, how do you reconcile those two things? And I think that's, again, a, a fundamental flaw in democracy that f going forward we will face. I didn't really mention immigration in the speech, but if you think about Britain, you know, people who go around the country, they say that immigration is one of the most important issues to voters and they don't feel that the mainstream parties are... Um, dealing with it and you know the potential the same proportion of vote could easily end up in the hands of UKIP um, that ended up with Beppe Grillo in Italy or with Syriza in, in Greece uh, and if you look at the you know the, the key thing was that the BNP which used to represent that vote you know um, the guy who's in charge of it what's his name again Griffin Griffin yeah, looks Griffin. like a complete thug um, whereas Nigel Farage seems like a nice chap who you know enjoys a pint so people might vote for him on the grounds it's not unrespect, you know, it's not, it's not bad to vote for him, whereas it was vote, bad to vote for Griffin. Uh, international peace and democracy. So, yes, well, we, a lot of people believe when democracy came in, you know, particularly in the area of the First World War, that you know they've been pushed into the First World War by these secret um, protocols and an elite who didn't care about the ordinary workers, and that democracy would eliminate wars. Well, it hasn't happened, of course. But it, what has happened is that democracies don't tend to fight each other, um, where we have seen. Um, big wars is of course between democracies and, and outside parties and um, I agree with you that the idea of imposing democracy by cruise missile uh, has not been a very um, constructive one and um, that again not only does it not deliver democracy to those nations and also often delivered more chaos than was there in the first place but it potentially undermines democracy within the host nation in that it is the wars lead to terrorism the terrorism, terrorism leads to illiberal measures on civil rights and so on and leads to the alienation of, pop, of minority populations within a multicultural society so um, 
there was a, a lovely quote I found from a Conservative Prime Minister uh, the other day um, called Lord Salisbury, and he said, um, whatever happens will probably be for the worse, so the best thing is to do nothing. So when we think about intervening in, in other countries' uh, affairs, you know, there's this kind of, that's another problem, I think, there's a managerial elite who think they can manage the economy and the world and they're smart and they deserve two votes or whatever, uh, and they haven't made a great deal on our economy and they don't make a great, they haven't been very successful at managing other people's affairs either. And maybe we need to, what's happened in the last week or so is perhaps a, that the British Parliament voted against Syrian intervention is you know, an argument that eventually people have woken up and listened to the voters who don't believe the elite have, have the magical ability to solve the world's problems that they, that they think they do. One last question. The gentleman who I disenfranchised... Oh. Oh, okay. All right. One last question from somewhere else, then, given the The assembly at the top. Yes. The lucky winner. Do you not think that democracy is outdated and that it has been successful in solving the problems of our our past, such as improving working conditions, but that democracy might be the right might not be the right system to solve the problems of our future, particularly global long-term environmental problems that we are facing today, as people tend to vote for their short-term private interests, not long-term public interest. Okay, well, I agree with Churchill that democracy is the worst possible system apart from all the others. Uh, And um, what other system would we impose if we didn't have democracy? Again, if you come back to the idea that experts know what they're doing and they should decide on these things, and I, I think recent experience has shown that isn't right, Um, monarchies are outdated communism has been shown to be economically um, flawed as well as flawed from the point of view of guaranteeing people's human rights Um, fascism is obviously clearly beyond the pale on so many counts so I I don't see the the alternative but I do worry that we so it's good for the final question that we are ending up keeping the form of democracy that we just get to tick that box every five years and we don't have the content of it that not enough of the decisions that get taken in society are actually taken by us and that we uh, have let power-making move away from us and move to to people who we don't vote for and can't control. I shouldn't really intervene here, but you could, of course, disenfranchise the elderly. The young people (laughs) would have to live with the consequences of their choices.